Hi, and welcome to Happiness Through Hardship, the podcast. I'm Karen Sullivan, the founder of Pretty Wellness, a two-time breast cancer survivor, thriving with stage four disease, and author of the book, which is a cancer guide and journal for patients and caregivers that shares the same name as this podcast, Happiness Through Hardship. I'm also a girl who wishes on pennies. I try to see the good in everything, even when life is not so great. But sometimes it takes a little more. And this podcast will provide you with what worked well for me, success stories of people that have been through hard times, and simple suggestions that brought hope, resources, and connections. I hope you've been able to catch our recent episodes where we've talked integrative medicine, mental wellness, and a whole slew of healthy living tips. Now, if you've liked these episodes, please do me a favor, rate, review, and subscribe. Your efforts truly will help this podcast get noticed and help us inspire more people. And now for this episode, I am so excited to introduce you to Lindsay Ray a boudoir photographer that has empowered hundreds of women to find their inner and outer beauty. She had an incredibly tumultuous upbringing and shares with us how she overcame obstacles, especially the negative self-talk that surrounds herself. Now, this episode is filled with tons of useful information and inspiration. And we go rogue. So please listen until the end where we play the Grateful Game version two. Now, if you're a listener, you know we play the Grateful Game to close out every episode. And this episode is focused on positive self-talk. So please grab your favorite drink, get cozy, and let's get started. I am so excited to introduce you to Lindsay Ray, an award-winning inspirational speaker and photographer with a focus on overcoming negative body image. She's a body image activist and founder of the Self Love Experience, a boudoir photography experience that has empowered hundreds of women to find beauty in their inner and outer selves. Today, she's going to speak about body image and share her story. She had an incredibly tough upbringing. And through her work, she tells us all how she found her worth, even though she was always told she would never be good enough. I am so honored to have her here today to share her truth and inspire us all to work towards overcoming negative self-talk. Thank you so much, Lindsay Ray. I am really, really excited to jump into this conversation because everybody everywhere can really, really, really do, do good, do better, feel better if they have loving self-talk, if they have a better body image. And I can't wait to jump right in and have you share this, your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to be here. It's I'm in New York and Troy, and we're finally getting a little bit of warm weather. And it's just amazing to be here. And, and you're right. It, it really is an empowering experience. Um, I didn't have the easiest upbringing. And it, it's hard for me to talk about, but I think it's extremely important because so many of us go through the same thing. And it's not a conversation that's often had. Um, I was raised in a really, really wealthy family. We lived in Eagle Trace, which is a neighborhood in Coral Springs, right down the block from Dan Marino of the Dolphins. Uh And 
I went from that to our family of five living in a two bedroom apartment with nothing. And then my father leaving our family. Um, and the story goes on and on. But the reality of it is that I've had the life experiences from both sides of the financial spectrum. I've seen what it's like to be extremely wealthy and I've seen what it's like to be on welfare and food stamps. And that's really guided the way that I move through life and how I deal with things because I have these alternate perspectives. It gives me the ability to see that there is another side, that there is a greener grass if you're willing to work. So despite everything I've been through, that's been something that I hold so deeply onto. You know, my father's a bodybuilder. My brother's a bodybuilder. My sister's a bodybuilder and a personal trainer. My mom is. And then I'm a size 20 plus size woman with PCOS and a number of, you know, I'm currently being tested for rheumatoid arthritis and everything else that I'm going through. And my body just doesn't look like theirs. And because of that, I was never accepted in my family. I was always told, you're not good enough unless you lose weight. Oh, Lindsay, you are so pretty, but you, you could you could be pretty prettier if you uh, took your hair down to cover up your chin so we couldn't see your double chin and, you know, just lost 20 pounds. Like every fat girl has amazing legs because she has to carry around all that extra weight. So at least you have that going for you. So like, this is the life that I was brought up with. I, I had a suicide attempt when I was 16. Um, at least I thought I was trying to. I took 13 Tylenol and my dad fought me. At this point in time, my mom had kicked me out of the house for talking to my father who had left us to be with his new wife. My father abandoned us um, <clears throat> to move in with a Christian missionary with six children. And I was raised Jewish and liberal and my father converted to Christianity, changed into an uber conservative supporter of Trump. Um, and it, it just it's a totally different person, which was terrifying. Um, but at one point in time, my mom, who also, you know, has her own issues and we as we all do, you know, at the time it was the worst because she was responding to everything through the trauma of my father's physical and verbal abuse. So I forgive her. I forgive her. And I think that that's important for anyone that's listening to hear me say because despite everything that you go through in childhood, when you can come at it from a trauma-informed perspective, sometimes you're going to be able to find that the people that you thought were the villains were really just survivors also. Um, and so if my mom's listening to this, I hope that she knows that I think she's a survivor because I know what she went through. I witnessed it, I saw it, and I experienced it myself. And, you know, to go back to that story, I was, I was six, uh, I wasn't even 16 at the time, I think it was like 14 or 15, and I had taken 13 Tylenol, and my dad walked in on me, and he forced me to shove a toothbrush down my throat to throw up. And after I threw up, he said to me, well, hey, at least you lost a couple pounds. When my sister, um, my sister has had overdosed on alcohol, severe alcohol poisoning, vomiting, hooked up to IVs in the hospital, forced to have her stomach pumped repeatedly. And the one thing that my father said to her at the end of that was, hey, at least you lost a good 10 pounds from this one. Maybe you should do this more often. This is the childhood and the person that raised me. This is the person and the voice in my head. This was the inner voice. As, as a parent, you don't realize this until, you, or as a child, rather, you don't realize this until you have your own children. But the things that your parents say to you and about you become your own internal voice. 
And so as a mom, I have an eight-year-old daughter named Gaia, um, Gaia Elizabeth. She's named after my best friend and actually after these books that I read that helped me survive everything I was going through. Um, and those are the fearless books. They're a preteen novel. There's 36 of them. And it was written about a girl named Gaia. And Gaia was this 17 year old bad to the bone girl who lived in New York City and she was fearless. She didn't have a fear gene. And so reading these books, I began to kind of live in this New York City world where I believed that being unafraid was possible. So at 19 years old, after a horrible car accident, I had only had my car for about three weeks. Um, I grew up in Florida. So if you've ever lived there, you've been in a torrential downpour <laughs> uh-huh. that comes out of nowhere. Um, my car hydroplaned and spun three times into a tree. And, you know, in that moment, sitting in that car, literally being saved, my life saved by the bar between the two windows and the two doors. The car was bent around the tree. I sat there and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I bought a plane ticket the next morning and I moved to New York City, 19 years old, two suitcases, a hope and a dream and $1,800 in my pocket. And I chased my dreams. I, I moved to New York City. I wanted to be Tracy Turnblad on Broadway because she was the only plus size girl that I ever saw as a celebrity at that time. You know, 12 years ago, you weren't seeing curvy women on stages or in movies or anywhere. You know, the only curvy women that were accepted were women of color. And even then they had to fight for that. So we're constantly having to look for things and not seeing ourselves. And so I moved to New York because there was this ideal This Tracy Turnblad, this character that I so deeply believed could be for me. And so I chased it and I and I didn't get the role. And that was actually the best thing to ever happen to me because it forced me to go to the other side of the camera. And that's when I worked with my mentor. He was actually my talent agent at the time when I was auditioning and trying to be on Broadway. Um, And so I started working for him and that's how I forayed into the other side of the camera. And funny enough, I actually started in weddings and family photography. Boudoir wasn't something that I thought that I would want to do. But when one woman said, hey, will you help me take these sexy pictures for my husband? I was like, you know what? Let's do it. And the moment that I clicked the shutter and showed her the picture on the back of the camera and saw the look in her eyes when she said, oh my God, is that me? And I could tell her, yes, this is what you look like through someone else's eyes. That light in her eyes, I will never forget it because that's the light that I see every time I get to photograph a client. And I started this business because I was like, you know what? Screw my dad. He doesn't get to pick what's beautiful. He doesn't get to be the only defining factor in somebody who deserves respect. I wanted to prove him wrong. And through doing that, I found myself, I found my worth, I found my mission, and I found my reason. That's my story. I, okay, those who listen to me on this podcast know that I'm a huge crybaby. I cry at the happy, I cry at the sad. This is so, it hit me on so many levels, and I'm guessing that a lot of the listeners the same way. As a parent, hearing of your story and how you were were treated as a parent now to my own child, knowing that 
so much of what you say to your child is their own self-talk. And knowing that that's how you, you know, the opposite was how you had to go through your own childhood experience. But then how incredibly empowering that at 19, you have this horrible accident, but yet it motivates you to be like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm doing something different. And that's really courageous for having been through so much. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's really... It, people really do say that life and death changes things because another confrontation with death that I had was when I was 20, I had moved to New York and I, and I tried again. Um, I had this amazing job. Like I told you, I was working for my agent, um, trying to do like build this new career. And then I brought in this woman to come work for us. And she ended up somehow convincing him to give her my job. So I was 20 in New York City, jobless, unable to afford anything, lost the one thing that I had ever found worth in myself for. And so I walked down to the bridge in Brooklyn. Um, Well, not the Brooklyn Bridge. There's an overlook in Brooklyn Heights, which was the college that I had gone to the city to go to. Their dorms were there. And I called everyone I knew on the way I walked like it had to have been a good 30 minutes of just walking from where I got off the train to the bridge and nobody answered. And so I stood there going step by step, you know, climbing my way over to the top of this this overlook where I could jump into the Hudson River and end it all. And as I went to take that step, my phone rang and it was my one of my best friends, Adam Benevi, and he convinced me to come down bought me a plane ticket and flew me back to Florida and saved my life. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I I tried three times. There was three, three really, really difficult suicide attempts. Only one of them was semi-successful and that's when I was younger and my dad, you know, despite everything, I'm, I guess I'm grateful that he did that because I have the most beautiful, radiant, intelligent daughter in the world. And I make sure that every single day she knows it. I don't let a single day go by. And in fact, her father, who I always say, um, you know, he's a great guy. He's just not my great guy. He's somebody else's great guy. He's meant for someone else. And I, I make sure that I really watch again how I talk about anyone and everyone connected to my daughter because those things become a part of you. When someone's putting down your parents and I hear people talking about how awful my my dad was and some of the you know tough times I went through with my mom when she was a victim. And, you know, I look at those things and I feel like I'm being judged. So as a mom, I've taken very, very careful steps despite my divorce and how I talk about my ex-husband because that is a part of my daughter. That's going to become her inner voice. So I don't want her thinking half of me is bad. I want her thinking all of her is good. Every aspect of her is worthy of love and respect. And part of that means respecting the two people that created her, myself and my ex-husband, but most importantly, myself. Because she's going to look to me and how I talk about myself for how she's supposed to talk about herself. Well, right, right. Now, can you share with us how did you had such negative surroundings growing up and then you moved to New York and you're trying out this new life. 
how do you, like, how did you change that self-talk? Because it's, at some point, like you're talking about here, you want it to be different for your daughter. It is. It sounds mm-hmm. like incredibly different for your daughter. But how do you, as somebody who spent years with that negative self-talk in your head and being said to you from other people, change? You know, I had five confrontations with myself that really brought me to this place that I am now. Um, the first one is my mental confrontation. And that's how I feel about myself. Um, one of them was a financial conversation that I had to have. And this was a really, really big battle for me because having gone from an extremely wealthy family to an extremely poor family on food stamps and welfare, I had grown up believing that money was not something that was allowed for me. I didn't believe it. So I had some serious, serious inner work and rewiring to do to tell my brain and to rewire my brain to believe that money isn't impossible, but it's inevitable. And that was a really, really big change in moving through every other confrontation that I had, because now that I had gotten out of my way with finances and started to get myself together and dig myself out of this hole that I started my life in, you know, some people get to start their life with their parents paying for their college in an apartment. I started in $7,000 of debt because at 18 years old, working in a telemarketing room, I didn't know that. I had to pay taxes. I thought I just got the whole thing because they don't teach you that in schools. You know, they don't they don't properly teach us these things. So, so many of us find and especially I find in men tie their worth to money a lot more than women do. But having your finances in order and believing in the inevitability that you are going to be successful is so shifting and it shifted everything about it. I was able to look in the mirror and when I wasn't liking what I saw, I could remind myself of the woman and the success and then what I did for other people. It took me a really long time to come out from behind the camera, a really long time. You know, despite all of the talk that I would do, it would be my words, but not my face. Because I still hadn't confronted how to look in the mirror. I had mirrors in my house, but they were hung up so high just so nobody would ask why I didn't. So when I would walk by, I couldn't even see myself. Years I avoided looking at my own confrontation or looking at my own face and being able to confront your own reflection is really, really hard. But when you can learn to look in the mirror and just stand there and just see yourself without the words of your past, without the words of a bad boyfriend or a mean girl from school. You just look at yourself as you exist in the moment. You can start to see your potential and you can start to find the parts of yourself that you like. And that's really what drives the work that I do is I say I'm literally giving you a different lens to see yourself through both figuratively and literally, a completely different lens that you're going to see yourself through. And I would take my own photos and I have them hung all over my house because I believe in it that much that when you begin to look at yourself in a different way, it will completely shift the way that you see yourself on the inside and your worth as a person. So I made sure that my home was surrounded by versions of myself that were confident, sexy, strong, and powerful. So that way that image of myself could become my inner voice. 
And that's been huge. And that's why I do what I do, because I believe it, not just because it's financially supporting me, but because I live it. I live the life that I preach to my clients. And that's surround yourself with the best image of yourself every day and look at it. And then eventually that image will become the version of yourself that you see and not the voices of other people. Well, and that's so interesting that you say that that is incredibly powerful and I can connect with it because I have a, a, a dear friend, she was actually on the podcast um, several weeks ago, Laura McCarthy, she was talking about being a single mom, but also how she went from corporate to being now a stylist. She was always this big fashionista and now she takes clients and talks about their personal brand. And I'm the girl who loves sitting in sweatpants. It's just comfortable. I roll out of bed. I'm fine. Like maybe I look in the mirror and I'm not sure what I'm saying to myself, but the days that I actually get up and I put on clothes, like not pajamas, not yoga pants, mm-hmm. but like actual clothes. And by the way, I'm pretty comfortable walking around town in my pajamas if I need to. I mean, they're like sweatpants pajamas, Same. of course. No, I would do pajamas. I have no shame. Right? I, but right. I, I agree. I literally have a tattoo. Well, it's covered up now because it was fading, but I'm going to get it re-inked. Um, but it says fashion is my weapon because I truly believe that it is a weapon in how you attack the world. The way that you choose to dress yourself and present yourself is your armor against the world. And you get to pick that. You get to pick the person that the world is going to see. No one else does. That's on you. And I think going on what you're saying is that it's not, I think for years I thought, I don't need to dress up. I don't need to impress other people. I don't need to, like whatever that saying was, but it really isn't about that. It's when you feel confident in what you're wearing, you feel confident all around. And that's what Mm -hmm. I think you're saying with the photography. Yep. And exactly what you said. We had an intern in high school named Mr. Bowie. And in high school was when I was at my worst. And I always say that that everything I'm doing is for her, is for that that 17-year-old girl who believed she was worthless. But I remember I would come in in the pajamas with the eyeliner smudged from the night before, from hanging out with my friends because I couldn't go home. You know, and I'd show up in the same clothes from the day before at school. And, and Mr. Bowie, this intern for our theater class, would say to me, Lindsay, come here for a second. And he would say, when you look good, you feel good. When you feel good, you do good. In fact, that might be my next tattoo because I believe in it so much. It's a mantra that I repeat to myself daily. I'm a big, big affirmations person. Ooh, let's talk um, because, about that because I, I know yeah. I saw it on your Instagram and I'm assuming when you were talking about the um, mental confrontations that those are some ways that wherever we're, you're at and you're like self-care, self-love, you know, self-image journey that affirmations and mantras can help. So tell us more about that. They they do. They believe. Now, I'm not suggesting everyone go out and tattoo all their mantras all over themselves. That's just what I do for myself because I'm so visual. Um, I have It's Okay tattooed on the side of my hand because that's something that I often need to remind myself. I have I Am Safe in Hebrew on my arm. I have I'm Speaking on my arm. I have If Not Now When on my back and on my legs. I have the quote, women hold all the power in the world. They should use it like a whip, not offer it up like a sacrifice. There is no place in the world that I can go that these words will not follow me because I've inked them on myself as a daily reminder. Now I'm a visual person. I'm a photographer. I need that visual. I live by it. I 
I breathe by constantly seeing things to the point where I even keep my, my medication in visual sight so I remember to take it. Um, but I suggest to clients a lot, take a post-it note and write these same things and like stick seven of them on your mirror. And at the end of, you know, every morning when you get ready, pull one of them off and just stick that sticky note to the back of your phone just so you see it for an entire day. And then throw it away at the end of the day. But when you're repeating it and you see something that often over and over and over and over again, repetition becomes memorization and memorization becomes the rewiring of the brain. So I live one million percent by putting affirmations all over the place visually too. you know, listening to them is great. But for me, visuals are key. So art that is affirming, not just pictures of yourself, but quotes. Um, and making art is also incredibly powerful. You know, just the experience of sitting down and saying, hey, I'm going to do something to be positive for myself. You know, I'm going to take this piece of wood and I'm going to paint. You are worthy on it. The time that you're committing to doing that is time that you've committed to valuing yourself and to spend time thinking about your own work. So I could not preach higher, speak higher on the value of affirmations and more importantly, visual affirmations. That's, I mean, that's, I really connect with that. And I want to say to all the listeners out there, please just give it a try. Just try something small because in the beginning when I was like, oh, mantras, mantras, whatever, that's not really going to work. You know, I I didn't take it seriously. I thought I tried it for a day. It doesn't work. Well, I do encourage people to try, try and try again. And hey, if it doesn't work, if if you've tried it several times, okay, so maybe that's not for you. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. taking like a moment of prayer or maybe it's um, listening to a guided imagery. But there are Mm -hmm. so many different ways that you can rewire you know, your brain to help you with positive self-talk. I think another one that I I had heard of is um, Gabby Bernstein wrote a book called Miracles Now. And she gives, I think it's like over a hundred different little tips on like meditation and mindful moments. And when she used to have negative self-talk, she had a bracelet and she'd snap it. Every time, like Mm -hmm. if something bad, like that way it's physical. Like some people, like you are visual, some people are physical. And if you notice then all day, your your wrist is kind of red at the end of the day. Well, hmm, maybe you've got, and you know, maybe you need to try and talk to yourself a little nicer. I remember, you know, it's funny you say that. I remember in high school, I, like I said, I was raised Jewish, um, but I was, you know, high school in a very Catholic community. And so for Lent, kids would always wear the bracelets. And whenever they would like almost like do what they were supposed to give up for the 40 days, they would snap it. And so it's funny that you say that because that always stuck with me as something like, why would you hurt yourself and yeah. like pain? But it's but it's true. If you if visuals aren't for you, audio may be for you. If audio may not be for you, physical may be for you. Um, You know, some people even do well letting affirmations play while they're sleeping. So it seeps into their REM. You know, there's so many different ways that you can rewire the brain. Um, One of the best things that I learned, and this is what made me actually believe for the first time that affirmations work. And it's not an affirmation at all. Um, I suffer from severe anxiety and PTSD, as you can imagine from the things that I've told you. And the best trick that my therapist taught me is called 478 breathing. You breathe in for four, you hold for seven, and you breathe out for eight, and you recycle and repeat that. And the reason why I believe this and affirmations are so aligned, 
was because I do that four, seven, eight breathing when I don't believe myself because it will physically slow your heart rate and slow your breathing down. So again, physical, visual, audio, they all play into each other. There's so many ways that you can interconnect the parts of yourself to feel whole and to feel worthy and to feel good, but it requires work and it's not easy and it's messy and it's yucky and you're going to face parts of yourself that you don't like and you're going to have the choice to change those parts of yourself because when it comes to self-love self-love to me doesn't mean I accept myself for everything that I am what self-love means to me is that I accept myself I accept my potential and I accept my responsibility and the hardest parts of self-love are when you look at yourself and see the things that you need to change about you um for me that was like a lot of trauma responding I would immediately respond through the lens of that 17-year-old girl who was about to be thrown out of her house to anything. And when I actually got divorced, I got, called my husband and my ex-husband and I told him, I said, you know, I have gotten so much healthier. I'm sorry that you had the sickest version of me, the person who could not respond through any other lens but trauma, because now I'm able to four, seven, eight, breathe. I pause before I do any response to anybody. And I just cycle through that three times, four, seven, eight, four, seven, eight, four, seven, eight. And during that time, my heart rate slows and I'm able to, on a vasovagal perspective on the nervous system, reply from a place of presence rather than a place of trauma. Um, so it's just, there's so many ways that you can interconnect these parts of yourself to really feel whole. And I don't think it's just one thing. I think all of them are required. Well, and I agree. I am huge into breathing exercises when it comes to stress reduction as it is, or I mean, healing. That's what my life the last 16 years has been about. And I think that it, for every reason that you just mentioned, it's slowing your heart. It's giving your cells the ability to, you know, take a pause and whether it's physical or mental, you know, give you a moment to then move forward with a healthier stance. Exactly. Because so many of us don't realize this. Like, I love that that the words trauma-informed are becoming so widespread and popular. Because what being trauma-informed means, it doesn't mean that you've gone through trauma. It means that you understand that people have gone through things and they might be replying to you out of their past experiences rather than out of the present moment. So being able to have a trauma-informed perspective, not just for yourself, but for others, will really, really change the way that your relationships work as well. Um, the best advice that my my boyfriend gave to me was I I would I was crying one day. Oh, something just got knocked over by the wind. Um, <laughs> was my uh, my boyfriend? I was crying one day about my mom not answering her phone and and not not wanting to talk because something had upset her. And he had to remind me and say, Lindsay, look at all the trauma you went through, and you were only with your dad for until you were nineteen. Your mom was with him for twenty seven years. That's eight more years of trauma that she went through with the same man, but yet you expect her to reply to you in a different way, but you want me to give you that grace, but you're not giving her that grace. And like, it really like shifted for me because I was able to finally forgive her. You know, I was able to finally say, I don't blame you anymore. You were a victim too. You know, the, the things that you would say and do to me were because you were afraid because you were scared. So having a trauma informed approach to life won't only change how you deal with yourself, but it will completely transform your relationships with 
every other person in your life. Well, and on that note, I think I read somewhere that you posted the all relationships start with the relationship with yourself. Mm -hmm. And and that sounds like what you're, you're talking about in essence in this conversation. That's exactly what it is, is when you can look in, in the mirror, both physically and like actually physically stand in front of the mirror and more on a spiritual level, look internally at yourself you're going to begin to be able to interact with the world in a totally different way because you're not going to look at somebody as seeing them as attacking you anymore. You're not going to take things personal because you're going to have the ability to understand because you've informed yourself on trauma and have become trauma informed that not everything is about you. (laughs) And I always say that and people like shake their head because it's kind of a rude thing to say. You know, my, I remember growing up, my mom would be like, not everything's about you. You have brothers and sisters and I'd want to punch her in the face. I literally was thinking that as you were saying this, I was literally like, Oh my gosh, our parents used to say that, but they were right. They were. And the way that they would say it is completely wrong. Okay. Yes. You know, and that's, and that's what we get to do different as moms. And that's why I am a full believer that this next generation of children that we're raising are going to be the ones that save the world. We are coming from such a different place, our generation of raising these, these children who are one trauma informed, two kinder, but three, we're not being jerks to them because we know how it feels. And we've made the choice to change. We've literally, you hear about it all the time, breaking the generational curse. This self-work is literally breaking generations of people that talk to each other like that. You know, I, my grandmother used to say the same types of things to me. And I know she was abusive to her son, who was my father. And I don't know what, what her parents were like, but I could tell you they were probably pretty similar. Right. So the ability to like really stop and break these generational curses is huge because you can say, you know, not everything is about me. And that's freaking great. That's amazing. Well, and it's like the best thing ever. It, it really is. And what's it, and then it also makes us all human to know that we all have struggles some bigger than others, but listen, we shouldn't be judging the content of somebody else's like struggles because we don't really know them. We only know our own. And that may come with age and wisdom to be able to really understand that. Uh, But it is the truth. And I do believe that it was what our parents maybe were trying to say to us years ago, but just maybe the tone or maybe the climate. You know, now Mm -hmm. there's so much about mental wellness and about we know a lot more and exactly. and people are willing to share their stories. So we know that sometimes behavior, like you had said, you, for, you forgave your mom because you realized that she was a survivor and, and that's really, really powerful. Now I just want to make sure I have all this. You were talking about your five confrontations with yourself. You have the mental confrontation, the financial conversation, con- confrontation. What are the other three? Um, I think we talked about physical physical confrontation is one of the biggest ones for me. And that's the looking at yourself in the mirror. Um, So we have mental, physical relationships, having, having to look at myself and look at how I'm really like working with people relationally, um, how I relate to others. And that again, same thing. It comes from being trauma informed and being able to understand that not everything's about me. (laughs) Somebody might just be having a really bad day. And actually one of the best things like hands down here is one actionable thing that you can do to completely change your life today before you vent to someone 
Ask them if they have the emotional capacity to listen. Don't just dump on people. You don't know what they're going through. It has changed my friendships so much that like now, instead of just venting, because I've had a, I have a lot going on, you know, I got some things to vent about and your friends don't always want to hear that. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to hear you and that they don't care about you and that they don't love you. They just might not have the emotional capacity right now. When you give someone the ability to tell you their own emotional capacity, what you're saying is I respect the place that you're in right now. And that will just breed such a different relationship with the people in your life. I use it with my boyfriend. I use it with my friends. I, you know, before I message them anything negative, I'll say, what's your emotional capacity right now? If one friend's not available, I'll reach out to the next until I find someone that's got the capacity. Because when you're forcing yourself on people that don't have the capacity to receive, you're not going to receive what you're hoping for from yeah, them, which true. is comfort and an ear because they're living their own life and going through their own things. So the simple sentence, do you have the emotional capacity right now, is life-changing. It's one sentence, it's one actionable item that you can take today to implement, and it will literally change all of your relationships. Wow, 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 wow. That, thank you. That's great. I appreciate it. And we usually we usually end our podcast episodes playing the grateful game. So I'm incredibly grateful, obviously, for the big things, the little things in life. And I share this game. What's really kind of cool is that it's something that my son and I, a few years ago, created ourselves. It was just our way to wind down a busy day and focus on something positive that happened. And listen, I get that having a small gratitude practice doesn't change the world necessarily, and it may not change my health diagnosis, but it did get us in a better mood. And it has become something that every day we look into the world and we find something positive because we want to share it with each other at night. However, I'm wondering if you'll go rogue with me because as we're sitting here talking, and I didn't ask you about this beforehand, so... <laughs> Listen, if if um we can go, I, I love playing the the grateful game, but you talk about self love. You talk about looking in the mirror and saying some nice things about yourself. And I'm wondering if we can have a you know a what I'm grateful for about myself game today. Ooh, I love that. Would one. you do that with me? And listen, I love that. I love that. I love that. I. I, I, I've never thought really to do this before. And like you, um, and the relationship with your daughter, I am very much of a cheerleader at heart. And so I am hoping that my son's self-talk is good because I really do try and pump him up. Um, and from time to time, I'll be like, you know, if he seems down, like, tell me something good about yourself. So this might be just a natural segue that he and I would play at night too. But I guess mm -hmm. in terms of like the rules, um, of the game, which really are give ourselves a time, you know, an amount of time. And we talk about what we're grateful for and why. And I guess I'm going to throw that. I'm going to try this. And hey, listeners out there, it might be a little murky because it's, this is not something that I, I practice regularly, but I'm going to try it here and let's see how it goes. And then I'll toss it to you. Perfect. Lindsay, right. okay. So what are you grateful for about yourself? About myself. Okay. And maybe I'm going to make myself cry. So I am grateful for what I like my smile and I will joke around that I never noticed I grew up with really pretty friends so I always joke around that I got a, I, I'm the one with the personality because my mm -hmm. friends were so pretty and so um, 
I never really thought of myself as pretty. And when I had chemo for the first time and I lost all my hair, I remember looking in the mirror and saying, oh my goodness, I kind of look like Demi Moore in the movie G.I. Jane. No (laughs) hair, like bald and pale face, but yet beautiful in some ways too. And that's when I noticed my smile. And that's when I called my mom and said, thank you for sending me the orthodontist for all those years because my teeth are really straight. And so I am, when it comes to myself, I, I, I am grateful for my smile. And what's funny about it though, is it's, it is the physical smile, but it's also like, I just love to smile. And you can I, hear it in your voice. I, well, th- thank you. I, I was the girl that like in junior high went into the bathroom and put on my ice blue pink lipstick. If you know, that might date me as <laughs> a, how old I am, but look in the mirror and smile. And my girlfriends, I specifically remember Amy Carlson Reese, now Tucker looking at me and in a, in a sweet way was kind of laughing. Like, why are you smiling at yourself in the mirror? And I'm like, well, that's what I do when I'm walking down the hallway. And so I think, um, you know, I guess that I'm, I'm coming upon about a minute. My smile is something that I cherish about myself, both physically and then kind of from, you know, I guess a mental level too. So now I'm going to toss it to you. Oh, that's a good one. So I'm going to pick something physical and something non-physical. Okay. I'm going to say the non-physical, I am so grateful for my voice um, because for years I was afraid to speak up. And so the ability to use my voice and to be heard and to not be shut down and to find my power within that is the thing that I am most grateful for in life. And physically, I am going to be grateful for my broken uterus because it gave me my daughter. Despite the fact that I can't have another child, that it causes me pain all the time, I'm going to thank it because it gave me the one thing in the world, the one person in the world that I love more than anything. And that's my little girl, Gaia. Oh, that's, uh, I mean, again, I, I, I am so touched by so your entire story and then the side stories about them all too. It's, it's really incredibly empowering. And that's why when we got on before this call, I was super excited to have this conversation as we're about to sign off, can you share with everybody where they can find you? Maybe even tell us a little bit. I'm curious about boudoir photography. I know we like sprinkled in a little bit about it, but, but you know, talk to us about this experience. Like what can people expect, whether they're there in person with you or what you would offer, say, online? Thanks. Yeah, I'm actually, because it's becoming difficult, because I'm booked out so much, I've actually started interviewing associates to bring someone in so we can expand our physical capabilities in the studio. Um, Just because we're that high in demand. And what I've done is I've gone on to create, and this will be coming out this summer, a confidence program for all women, not just for photographers. And so that'll be coming out soon. You can follow me along on bodyimageactivist.com and at the body image activist on Instagram and the, the boudoir experience and the virtual and digital experience that we're creating all revolve around one thing. And that is that when you are more confident in yourself, you can move through the world with more authority and more confidence. And that means that we're doing everything from the body image to the bottom line because it all ties together. Wow. I can't wait to see how this all I want to say plays out, I guess that's my terminology, but you 
are such I a can't positive wait to see how it force. Plays out too. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. And hey, as we all know, as we all know, it's all about learning. Like sometimes, um, as we're putting one foot in front of the other, we want to get it right the first time. But you seem to have really created, uh, I, you know, a movement, and and hopefully, it, it to me when I read all the testimonials on your Instagram you really are changing people's lives. You've changed your own. You are creating a beautiful path for your daughter. And then out there in the community, in the world, you're really helping people, sh- you know, understand their worth. Now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> so, so thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. And to all the listeners out there, I hope that you'll take a moment, whether it's to think about what you're grateful for today and why, because that could help you gratitude can help you toward a life filled with more happiness and even good health. And as well as think of something today that you like about yourself, because as we talked about today, you know, when you feel that confidence within, it's really going to help you live a better life. So Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay Ray, for being here today. And to all the listeners, I hope that we've been able to give you a few ideas how to navigate, you know, finding a little joy during whatever journey you're going on in life. So have a great day, everyone, and bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to leave you with a quick thought, but first a request. Please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. You leaving a review helps us with our podcast ranking. The higher we are ranked, the more people can discover our show. And tell your friends about us. If you love us, they might too. And now my parting words. I hope this episode inspired you to think about overall mental wellness and positive self-talk. I'll tell you, it sure did for me. And can you think about now what one small step can you do to be kinder to yourself? Like Lindsay Ray suggested, is it positive post-it notes on your mirrors? Is it using breathing techniques? Or is it playing your own version of the grateful game about yourself as we did to end this episode? Thanks again for joining us today. I am sending you lots of happiness and great health. Bye for now.